VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature. I don't want any of this lover's lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something up-tempo. I want something snappy. After 31 years, R.E.M. has called it quits, leaving behind a legacy of 15 albums and a model for indie rockers to come. I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Cotter of the Chicago Tribune. We look back at the music and career of R.E.M. and review the new Wilco release that's coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. And time now for some music news. Washington, we're watching you, a classic from the Staples Singers. Mr. Cott, you just came back from our nation's capital, covering the annual Future of Music Coalition Conference. What did you learn in D.C.? This is a huge conference for the technology, government, music, and legal communities in terms of how their interests intersect. Now, the big development, as far as I was concerned, was we got some firm guidance as to where copyright law is going in this country. A number of people have been advocating a major overhaul of copyright law, going all the way back a decade ago to the first ruling on the Napster case, where the judge in that case basically said, you know what, the law really isn't applying to the way people are accessing music anymore. Well, Representative Bob Goodlatte of Virginia, a ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee, and Maria Polenta, the Register of Copyrights and Director of the U.S. Copyright Office, both basically said, don't hold your breath. Uh, We're not going to see any major substantive changes coming from Congress in addressing copyright law. It just takes too long. So it's broke, but they ain't going to fix it. You know, I think there was an interest in wanting to fix it, but they realized this process is going to take a long time. And by that time, there's going to be another decade of innovation going on. Example one of this is Girl Talk, who is taking samples of popular hits 
and reconfiguring them into new music. Technically, he is in blatant violation of federal copyright laws presently constituted. He's like got 260, 300 violations per album. The way people behave in their own homes, trading music files. The vast majority of those millions of people are in violation of federal copyright law. So they basically gave tacit approval to this weird legal gray area that is going to continue for the foreseeable future. It's kind of a risky proposition. Go ahead, try something, see what happens. Hopefully the law eventually will catch up, but that's not going to happen anytime soon. Now, there also was some big news on the concert music, live music front. Yeah, Jim, we had this uh, series of tragic accidents with temporary stages over the summer, basically four temporary stages collapsing in the middle of these storms. A dozen people were killed. Dozens more were injured, one involving the band Cheap Trick at the Ottawa Blues Fest back in July. Now, guitarist Rick Nielsen and band manager Dave Fry spoke at the Future of Music Summit. While in Washington, they went to Congress and lobbied for some kind of regulation or sanctioning of these temporary stages, similar to what they would do for a Ferris wheel at a carnival or an elevator in an office building. They don't have any such regulation in this temporary stage business, and as we saw this summer, it can lead to tragic consequences. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that is Losing My Religion by R.E.M., the band's biggest hit in a 31-year career. That came out in 1991 from the Out of Time album, and I remember Greg sitting with the group down in Athens, Georgia, still their home base at that time, before the record came out, asking Michael Stipe, what is that phrase? Where does that come from? I'm not familiar with it. Stipe said Losing My Religion was an old Southern expression, meaning giving up hope, being at the end of your rope, throwing in the towel. Well, that's what R.E.M. has done. After a 15-album career, after 31 years as a band, coming together in 1980 in that small college town of Athens, the group has decided to call it quits, at least the three founding members. Michael Stipe, the singer, guitarist Peter Buck, bassist Mike Mills. The co-founder, drummer Bill Berry, who was an integral part of the group, had left sometime earlier because of a brain aneurysm. We are going to look at this legacy, how they started out as a band epitomizing jangly indie pop. They became something much more, an art rock band that was capable of filling arenas and thrilling crowds and having big hit records. In fact, getting one of the biggest record contracts ever from Warner Brothers Records. What will stand as their best music? What is their legacy going to be? This is the question to ask on the occasion of No More R.E.M. Indeed, Jim. I think the career neatly divides into two 15, 16-year periods, if you will. Those first 15 years, 10 albums, I take eight out of those first 10 to, yeah. to this day. Must-owns. The last half of the career, certainly less meaningful in terms of impactful music. 
But what a legacy nonetheless. Very few bands can talk about making that many great albums in that period of time. And also, as you alluded to, the symbolic importance of this band. They were one of the first in in that whole post-punk scene in America. Think about it. 1980, we're talking about not only a independent band, but out of the South. Now, Southern Rock... As great as Leonard Skinner was, mm. there was an association with that style of music. It did not have a great reputation. And here comes R.E.M. out of the Deep South, Athens, Georgia. That's where the four members of R.E.M. were going to school in 1980 when they decided to give up school and say, let's give this band a go. Right around the corner, the blockbuster era was happening. The major labels were ascendant. In a matter of years, we would see major, major albums from Michael Jackson, Prince, Bruce Springsteen. Into this milieu, we have this little band on a little label forging this alternative way of approaching the music industry. Alternative by necessity, because it has to be said that punk failed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, in, right. in America, the Ramones and Patti Smith and the Talking Heads all had some success, but did not rule the arenas and the airwaves, and so that music was swept back under the rug. You know, I think of those songs, Jim, especially during this period in the 80s when they really weren't on the mainstream radar. They really didn't get there until the end of the decade when they started recording for Warner Brothers. But they had that song Cuyahoga in the middle of that run and that great line in there, let's put our heads together and start a new country up. Let's put our heads together Start a new country up The fathers, fathers, father tried to erase the parts you didn't like Let's try to fill it in Bank the quarry it's like they were talking to us. There's this Reagan America, there's this Michael Jackson America, this mainstream America, and then there's the rest of us out here. The acceptable fringe of the unacceptable, as Peter Buck would say in certain interviews. And we should explain, for the benefit of our younger listeners, the underground in America in the 80s truly was underground. There was no internet connecting things. People ran off a couple of hundred copies of an 8.5 by 11 Xerox fanzine, and you took this as a sacred text. It was writing about this band, Husker do or the Minutemen or the Replacements or R.E.M. And you handed it to somebody and you treasured it. And I would put up your band when you came to my neck of the world and you would do the same for mine. And R.E.M. writes a song about this. Little America. Touring the country. There was early manager Jefferson at the wheel. Jefferson, I think we're lost. Mm-hmm. The biggest wagon is the empty wagon is the noisiest the They knew this world, and it was very exciting for you who were in this world as a DJ or a band member or a fanzine writer to hear them singing about it. They played their first gig in Athens in April of 1980, They got good fast. They wrote a bunch of songs that weren't very good initially, but by the time they got to gardening at night, they said they started to hear something different, started to hear their own sound. Mm -hmm. 
Now, their first single was actually released on this little hip tone label in 1981, Radio Free Europe, an iconic song. Again, a song that you didn't generally hear on radio that much, but word of mouth about this record spread really quickly. But there was a few things going on in this sound that I think made them unique. First of all, you had that rhythm section. Mike Mills and Bill Berry basically grew up in high school together in Georgia and formed this rhythm section. Mills on bass, Berry on drums. Jim, I don't know about you, you're, you're the drummer in our combo here, but I heard a lot of that southern swing and soul tradition in what they were doing. They were, they were referencing those Memphis rhythm sections at the Stax label. They were referencing that Muscle Shoals rhythm section out of Alabama. I heard a little bit of that swing combined with the energy and the forward motion of rock and roll, of, of the punk band. Then you had Buck on lead guitar, again, not playing block chords, which again would dominate the sound. If you're playing those on electric guitar, they tend to become the forefront of the mix. He was playing these arpeggiated chords and these single note runs, very sparse, leaving a lot of room for Mills on bass to surge to the forefront of the mix. Stipe, famously shy, famously mumbly, but evocative in, in the same way with that plush baritone voice that he had, sinking back into the mix and creating this democracy of sound by default almost. It wasn't just the front man and the band. It was four guys making this mysterious sound together. And that sort of mysterious, murky sound typified by the album cover of their first album, Murmur. The kudzu. The kudzu, those dense vines that typify the southern topography. That's what they uh, sounded like. Exactly. That murkiness was there. They called the That sound had no chance of getting on mainstream radio when everything was really shiny and polished. The records they made in those early days, from the, the first hip tone single up through the EP Chronic Town, the debut album Murmur, and then Reckoning in 84, all done in the Deep South with Mitch Easter and Don Dixon producing a wonderful, one-of-a-kind sound 
that established a foundation for their career with IRS records. I think typical of that sound was a song called Pretty Persuasion that ended up on the Reckoning album in 1984, but it was actually among the first batch of songs that they wrote. It goes back to the earliest days of the band and was a staple of the band's live show for a long time. And Jim, I think when they recorded their first album, Murmur, they were encouraged by the record company to write slower more contemplative songs. I think IRS back in their minds were thinking, hey, maybe these guys could do a power ballad and we could get them on radio or something like that. I've heard that IRS <laughs> thought they would be the psychedelic first. Yeah. They wanted that moody goth kind of thing. Right. And it was a, actually a good move because it did bring that breath to the music that was maybe lacking before. But I remember seeing this band for the first couple of times. There was sort of a breathless quality about the music. Uh, that rhythm section was really coming at you. It was almost hurtling at you. And yet there was sort of this delicacy and fragility about it as well. And I think part of that reason was that Peter Buck said, you know what? I still remembered the Beatles. We remember those great songs that they wrote, you know, the middle eights and the intros. There was a sense of really fine-tuned structure about the songs. And those beautiful harmonies, you know, as you mentioned, yeah. not only Stipe, but Mills and Barry on the backing harmonies. And I think it all comes together on this song. It was a great live song, a live favorite for a long time. The band almost didn't want to include it on Reckoning because they, they thought it was too old. But Easter insisted. He said, this song is too good. You've got to get this on the record. And it's a great example, of, I think, of that iconic early R.E.M. sound. Pretty Persuasion from the Reckoning album in 1984. Let's take a listen to it on Sound Opinions. Persuasion by R.E.M. from their 1984 album, Reckoning, one of the greatest tracks from the band's early years. We're going to continue our exploration of R.E.M. by moving forward to the Warner years and eventually their breakup. 
Later, we have a review of the new release by Wilco, and it's Jim's turn at the Desert Island Jukebox. That's all in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That is South Central Rain by R.E.M. from their 1984 release, Reckoning. R.E.M. is the focus of today's show in the wake of its breakup after 31 years together. Now, Jim, at this point in the band's career, they're producing hit singles, but they're still on an indie label, IRS Records. And their influences were pretty obscure for the time. We're talking about bands like the Soft Boys and Big Star and the singer-songwriter Nick Drake. In fact, they were so beholden to uh, Nick Drake, so much in love with that music, that they went to Nick Drake's producer, Joe Boyd, to record what would be their next album, Fables of the Reconstruction, in 1985. So Michael Stipe, Peter Buck, Mike Mills, and Bill Berry pack off for England to record that album. And it's basically a chronicle of this band's life on the road. Think about them playing hundreds of shows a year. That's where they really forged their reputation, that word of mouth spread, because this band was on the road playing shows, and people said, oh, my God, what a great band. It wasn't about radio airplay for a long, long time. Mm. It wasn't until, really, 1986 with Life's Rich Pageant, and then most especially in 1987 with Document, where the music actually started to expand to the point where commercial radio programmers started to pay attention to it. The One I Love becomes a top-20 hit. Many people missing the fact that it is an anti-love song. This one goes out to the one I love who really messed me up, and I'm wishing you nothing but the worst. To this day, you ask many people, oh, I love that song. It's a great love song. That's true. Not really. This one goes out to... This one goes out to the one I've left behind A simple prop to occupy my time This one goes out to the one I love 
That's right. And even though there was a cleaner, harder-hitting sound on these albums with Don Gaiman producing Life's Rich Pageant in 86, and then Scott Litt making his first impression on the, the rock world in 87 with Document, there was a lot of political commentary going on here. Stipe went from that mumbly, I'm too shy face to really say anything other than these stream of consciousness lyrics into a more strident sense of political commentary. He wasn't hitting you over the head with it, but it was there. And that song Cuyahoga that I mentioned, or Fall on Me, there was a very much an environmental message. We were right in the middle of the Iran-Contra controversy when they wrote the song Welcome to the Occupation, which directly addressed that. Here we stand and here we So they were becoming more outspoken about their political views and, and really sen- sensing, I think, this leadership role that they were growing into. They were the first one to forge ahead onto commercial radio. They were the first band from that underground scene to sell a million copies of an album, as they did with Document. They were the first one to have a major hit with The One I Love. So these were all landmark moments for them on an independent label, in that college radio scene, in that fanzine scene, to grow out of it, they eventually outgrew it. They couldn't go any further, they felt. And uh, when the major labels came calling, lo and behold, they signed a deal with Warner Brothers. December 1987, they've been on the cover of Rolling Stone, which called R.E.M. America's best rock and roll band. They were getting some major breaks. I remember seeing them play Shea Stadium, opening for the police and talking to Peter Buck not long after that. And he said, you know, it was a kick, obviously, the history, the Beatles, everything, right? It broke our hearts to see the police arrive in three different limousines, Mm. one for each member of that band. They weren't a band, and we said right then and there, if we can make this leap, we'll play to as many people as we can, but we never want to become that. And a young Jim Deere got his fanzine writer, files that away. (laughs) There was a sense, as they signed to Warner Brothers, one of the world's biggest record labels, but the coolest. What can R.E.M. become? Can they become more than this little club band, which had moved up to theaters? Can they play arenas? And is that a good thing? When they came out with Green, the first major label album, was like, okay, this is still R.E.M. Hello, I saw you, I know you, I knew you. They've amped up some things. That growing political consciousness you were talking about comes in on document. Now they've got a song called World Leader Pretend, which is talking about the Vietnam War and the Cold War. This is my world, and I am world leader pretend. This is my life. This is my time. I have been given the freedom to do as I see fit 
It's high time I raise the walls that I've constructed. There are posters in every college dorm at this time. Reagan's famous mic test quote, in five minutes we yeah. begin bombing. In this context, R.E.M. is talking about these issues, but they're also still making just free, joyful hot music. Now it's a more stripped-down sound, Stand. Stand in the place where you live. It's just a happy, buoyant pop song. There had always been the party aspect of R.E.M., the pop aspect. Stipe, famously early on, derided often murmur called mumble in many corners. Now he's articulating and singing clearly. Now Stipe is developing this voice, and he's talking about issues, sometimes in, in slightly inscrutable terms. By early 1991, it seems as if R.E.M. is getting to be a bit old hat. We're hearing these sounds out of Seattle, and it seems like there's a new set of rules. I think R.E.M. took that time to regroup. This is smack dab in the middle of their career. They're going to go back to the basics. They always had this love of folk rock. Everybody always compared them to the birds early on because of those chiming, arpeggiated chords you referenced. They strip down their sound. They go back to the folk rock they love some new instruments in the mix. Mandolin, organ, acoustic guitar. The storm that came up strong Shook the trees and blew away our fear We couldn't be here To go it along and hold it along Hold it along and hold it Go it along I remember being flown down to Athens, Georgia, circa out of time, to spend some time with the band. They still lived in Athens. Actually, some of them didn't, but they came back to Athens to do press. And you would spend half a day with Michael, and he'd take you to the vegetarian restaurant mm-hmm. he owned, and he'd muck around in the kitchen. Then you'd go out to Barry's farm, and maybe you got to ride the tractor. Buck, you interviewed on the porch of his house, and he showed you his record collection. They had this down to a science. They knew how to court the press. And you thought, this band has become huge, but it hasn't lost it. Out of Time turns out to be their most successful album to date at that point. It's Wonderful Silly on one side, Shiny Happy People. There's no time to cry. was in a better place in his life at that point. He said, oh, people always come up to me and tell me that's the most cynical song you've ever written. And I was just trying to write a Beach Boys song. (laughs) There are some pure pop moments, and then there are some heavier moments. Songs like Low or Country Feedback which kind of harken back to the earlier atmospheric R.E.M. of Gardening at Night. And that would be even more the case with their next album in 1992, Automatic for the People. Smash, crack, push, whack, tie another one to the racks, baby. 
and roll. Nobody tells you where to go, baby. This is a darker record, a quieter record. It's like part two of Out of Time, minus some of the more upbeat moments. But what is there are some extraordinary songs that just stand the test of time. I'm going to play one of those. Now, I was I was torn. I, I was thinking of playing the song Near Wild Heaven from Out of Time because mm-hmm. it's one of the lesser-known songs. It's one of the rare songs that Mike Mills sings lead on. Wild Heaven wasn't a big single, it wasn't a popular radio track, but it illustrated that at this point in their career, even R.E.M.'s toss-offs were still incredible. But if I'm going to highlight one song from that mid-period catalog as we look back at the band's legacy, I have to go with Automatic for the People and the tune Everybody Hurts. Even though it is an obvious choice, I think it is very resonant of the times. The death toll in America from the horrible scourge of AIDS was getting to be astronomical at this point. I think that's part of what this song is about. The depression common among many young people is part of what this song is about, especially closeted gay young people who feel they can't come out and issue. And I remember, Stipe was only like sort of coming out at this point, Mm -hmm. way into the band's career. He related to people's pain. He related to people feeling alone. And he's singing, no, 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 you are not alone. In a wonderful video, the cribs from Vim Vender's Wings of Desire, you know, the angels on the shoulder able to hear the, the inner conflicts of these humans. This, I think, is important to know about this song. It's written in large part by the drummer, Bill Berry, mm-hmm. who had always been contributing to the songwriting. He's about to leave, and I think the band lost something crucial. There was always this pact that they made from day one. Like Buck told me, we're not going to become the police. He also said... Every one of these four members is key to the band. If one of them's gone, we're not R.E.M. anymore. This is a song that I think really captures the moment. And the fact that these are rock connoisseurs, they don't just hire anyone to arrange the strings on this album. This is John Paul (laughs) Jones of Led Zeppelin, who Peter Buck would probably, being the ultra-rock geek, would probably, well, you know, yeah, Led Zeppelin was fine. But we hired him because of the work he did with Donovan. (laughs) Right? That's That's the sort of thing Buck... That's a Peter Buck line, yeah. That's what Buck would say. Yeah. So they're working with John Paul Jones. Their best producer, I think, uh, after after Mitch Easter, was Scott Litt. And Barry's written this song, and Stipe pours heart and soul into it. Here is Everybody Hurts by R.E.M. on Sound Opinions. When your day is long And the night The night is yours alone When you're sure you've had enough Of this life Oh 
Everybody Hurts by R.E.M. from Automatic for the People in 1992. Greg, I will say definitively, Automatic for the People, the last inarguably great R.E.M. album. That means out of 15 records, they'd given us eight really good must-own records in a row. Mm -hmm. And then I really felt the band began to let me down. I was snookered. I kind of liked Monster originally in 1994. That was their We Go Back to Hard Rock, enough with this mandolin. listening to all these other albums frequently. I never listened to Monster for fun again. And then I thought New Adventures in Hi-Fi was really the bottom. It was suddenly the exception. Maybe one or two songs that stood out and the rest sounded like corporate rock, especially when Barry left the group. It's inevitable that a band of that size and that stature is going to scatter. There's a disparity there in, in a personal connection and in a musical connection as well. You know, I think Monster was kind of a toss-up, but I will make the case for New Adventures in Hi-Fi. I really think it was a last gasp for the group. They didn't know it at the time, but it was done in really innovative fashion. They were kind of doing it hit and run on the road, kind of guerrilla style. The sense of anxiety in that record, that sense of dislocation, the, of, of being on the road and not feeling connected to your surroundings, I think was a, in many ways a metaphor for what the band was feeling internally and also for the state of the country at the time. So New Adventures in Hi-Fi was the last record these four original members made together, and then a year later, Barry left the band. 
This is coming at a weird time for the band because they had just signed this huge $80 million deal with Warner Brothers. They'd renewed the contract, re-upped for a huge amount of money, and then Barry quits. So what does the band do? Barry was basically saying, I will be really miffed if you use me as the excuse to break up this band. You guys should continue on if you feel like it. And they did, as a three-legged dog, as Michael Stipe said. I think in years later, they kind of acknowledged the fact that, you know, maybe this whole idea of continuing on without Barry was not such a great idea. Mills and Buck both said to me that Barry's role as a songwriter in that band was crucial. He was a drummer. He was a multi-instrumentalist. He was a key voice in the songwriting. Mills told me he was a great editor. He was the guy that got the fluff out of the songs. So they missed that element. And I think, Jim, the last decade plus was kind of very erratic, to put it charitably, for this band. I think they made a slight comeback with Accelerate a few years ago where they got back to some of that noisy, punky, early rock sound that they had. Maybe their version of the Rolling Stones' Some Girls, kind of like the last kick of life. And then we reviewed Collapse Into Now this year, and, you know, there are other bands out there that are doing better versions of R.E.M., you know? The joke I've heard about ten times is that the best R.E.M. record in 2011 was made by the Decemberists, and they obviously are one of many bands that have been influenced by them. So what is the legacy? Let's sum it up. I'll sum up the negative end of it. You take an $80 million loan from somebody to re-up with a huge record contract, there's expectations with that, and you no longer necessarily have the artistic freedom to break new ground. You've got to become... R.E.M. the corporation instead of R.E.M. the band. But there's a positive legacy to this band, too. Yeah, clearly, Jim, it's a tale of two bands, really. The first 15 years and the last 16. And I would say in those first 15, they really established a way of bending the mainstream to them rather than catering to the mainstream. And that's a legacy that is going to live on through the generations. We already saw it with the bands that came immediately after them saying, hey, they can do it, we can do it too. And I think even in this digital age that we're living in, where DIY is going to become the new mantra once again, we will see R.E.M.'s legacy continue. So we ask you, what are your memories of R.E.M.'s history? Was this the right time for the band to end? And what do you think its legacy will be? Call 888-859-1800. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, we'll review a new album from a band that certainly was influenced by R.E.M. It's The Whole Love by Wilkins. Tell the sky, tell the sky. Tower for side is an issue. 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and we're listening to Art of Almost, a track from the new Wilco album, The Whole Love, eighth studio album from the Chicago Sextet. As a six-piece incarnation of this band, it is the longest-running lineup of Wilco in its history. The band goes back to 1994, formed in Chicago with Jeff Tweedy and John Stewart holding over from the band Uncle Tupelo, and going on to make a series of records with a shifting array of musicians. Currently, the band is probably at its peak in terms of its popularity. Even though it has sold many records for major labels, independent labels, it is now a complete indie, basically recording out of its Northside studio, self-producing, self-releasing all its own albums, and touring to theater and, in some cases, arena-sized audiences around the world. Eighth studio record, as I said, first for their own independent label, DBPM. It's The Whole Love, and here's a track from it. It's called One Sunday Morning, Song for Jane Smiley's Boyfriend on Sound Opinions. This is how I tell it. Oh, but it's long. One Sunday morning. One Sunday morning, song for Jane Smiley's boyfriend by Wilco from their eighth studio album, The Whole Love on Sound Opinions. Mr. Cott, you wrote the book on Wilco, literally, as their biographer, but I've covered them from the beginning of their career, too. And I will say that that song, One Sunday Morning, is one of the finest Jeff Tweedy ever has written. Twelve-minute song, okay? Mm -hmm. And it goes around and around, and the melody never gets old. It's so strong. At the same time, the tune that we came in with, Art of Almost, goes back to those art rock post 9-11 inventive experimentation days of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot and A Ghost is Born. I think Wilco has been a bit schizophrenic in recent years. Sky Blue Sky and Wilco the Album were fine albums, but not extraordinary. They, on the one extreme, had the experimentation of that mid-period Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, and on the other hand, they had the singer-songwriter 
Now they're trying to bring both together, and I think they do it spectacularly well on this album. I think, you know, comparing them to former Warner label mates R.E.M., this model now of becoming their own independent unit, their own record label, you mentioned they can tour arenas, they can they can keep an audience coming out to see them, they can, they can do their own festival, and they can still be experimental and inventive. Here they've got the mix just right. It's a definitely an enthusiastic buy it. Well, Jim, I agree with you on the buy it rating. I uh, will say that the first track and the last track, as you cited, are exceptional songs. In fact, I think some of the best things they've done in the last decade. I love the fact that they are opening the album with this take-it-or-leave-it track, a very divisive opening track in Art of Almost. That reminds me of those days when they were really taking some chances. They had a run of albums there from being there to A Ghost is Born, where you didn't know what you were going to get when you yeah. put a Wilco record on it. And I love that sense of surprise that they were constantly giving us during that period. And Art of Almost returns to that impulse. And as you said, that last track that we just played, One Sunday Morning, a song for Jane Smiley's boyfriend, that undulating beauty that reminds me of Remember the Mountain Bed, a song that they collaborated on with Woody Guthrie, so to speak, or at least worked the lyrics. That same kind of vibe, that mesmerizing hypnotic sound. In the middle, we've got some take-it-or-leave-it cuts, but with Sunload, that psychedelic ballad, and the up-tempo song, I Might, John Stewart's bass just awesome on that song. In fact, Stewart's bass playing throughout on this album is exceptional. I think so is Glenn Kochi's drumming. They're the reason I come back to it. A, a strong return to form for Wilco after two so-so records. I think it's a buy it all the way. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Okay, Jim, we're boarding the uh, Sound Opinions yacht for the desert island. You are in charge of the music this time. What is a song that you cannot live without for today? Greg, this week I'm going to play one of the cornerstone songs of early hip-hop that helped really put it on the map, The Message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. The reason I'm going to play it is because we have to pay tribute to Sylvia Vanderpool, better known as Sylvia Robinson, recently died at the age of 75, one of the founders of Sugar Hill Records. And you can really say that without Sugar Hill, there would have been no hip-hop. What a fascinating life this woman had. Born in New York City in 1936, was a recording star on her own, and as part of the duo Mickey and Sylvia, man, love is strange. What a tune. Mm. Bo Diddley wrote it. They made it a hit. Went on to record on her own, but then in the 70s, she co-founds Sugar Hill Records, named for a historic part of Harlem with her then-husband. And it has some hits early on, R&B and soul, but it's foundering when one day she hears this music at a party. The DJ's spinning records are toasting or rapping over the records they're playing. And she says to her son and her husband, you know, I think if we put out a record that was just that, people might really like it. Rapper's Delight in 1979, generally considered the first rap song. But it was 82's The Message that showed people that this music can be art. This music can have a message. Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five were reluctant to record the song. Sylvia Robinson kept pushing them. She would get credit as producer. 
Melly Mel would be one of the writers along with some of the Sugar Hill studio people. In later years, Flash would be a little reluctant to own up to his own biggest hit because only one of the Furious Five was actually on the record. This is the birth, in some ways, of the producer as the guiding force in hip-hop, more than the MC in some cases. Any way you cut it, though, this is a vital, vibrant, timeless song about the problems on the streets, in the ghetto. You know, this is people talking about what's happening in their lives in a very serious way in a new musical form that would go on to change the world, literally. And it wouldn't have happened without Sylvia Robinson. In her honor, Dead at 75, here's the message by Grandmaster Flash on Sound Opinions. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. On the stage, you know they just don't care. I can't take the smell, can't take the noise. Got no money to move out, I guess I got no choice. Rats in the front room, roaches in the back. Junkies in the alley with the baseball bat. I tried to get away, but I couldn't get far. Cause a man with the touch of repossessed my car. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Standing on the front stoop, hanging out the window, watching all the cars go by, roaring as the breezes blow. A crazy lady living in a bag, eating out of garbage pails. Used to be a hag, such a dance to tango, skipped the life and tango. A circle on princess seemed to lost her senses. Down at the peep show, watching all the creeps, so she can tell the stories to the girls back home. She went to the city and got so, so, so dirty, she had to get a pimp, she couldn't make it on her own. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. The message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, my Desert Island pick for the week. The Sound Opinions Desert Island Jukebox is supported by Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark Bourbon, it is what it isn't. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, the topic is hero worship. We play songs in which musicians honor their own musical heroes. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn and Jason Saldana with the able assistance of Annie Minoff and our fearless leader, our executive producer, a man whose favorite REM song is Shiny Happy People, is Tori Southside Malatia. to lose my head. It's like a jungle sometimes, it makes me wonder how I keep from going under. It's like a jungle sometimes, it makes me wonder how I keep from going under. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. I'm in the phone with this one across the hall. Hello, uh, my name is Greg Hurd. I'm from Toronto, and I just want to say a friend of ours has been bringing bands over from Japan, independent bands. He brought five over two years ago and six over last year. 
And the concerts were some of the most amazing I've ever been to. Uh, these kids are just on fire. The three that stand out in my mind are a band called Gumi, another one called Mother Coat, but the best, in my opinion, is a band called Sasquatch. And they have a record called In This World, and the singer sounds like he's speaking English, but he's actually not saying anything. He just likes the sound of English words, and they have this little girl that just drums the living crap out of the record. Ah, uh, they kick, kick butt. They're just absolutely amazing. And the track to play would be Ghost. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, my name is Jeff Logan, and I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I just want to say um, I really like your show. I just got turned on to it about a month ago or so. I got turned on to it because you were just playing the band Low during one of your segues. I just thought it was great. Um, and I just listened to uh, your Bob Ezrin section as I'm driving down to Philadelphia, and uh, great job. Keep it up. Hi, uh, this is George Carroll. I'm calling from Claremont, Florida. With respect to the first time I heard Beth, I had been rummaging through my sister's Columbian Record and Tape Club A-Tracks and had stumbled upon uh, the Destroyer record. And after listening to King of Your Nighttime World and uh, Great Expectations and these strange titles that had an immediate impact on me, I heard Beth and was brought to tears and, and, and put aside the Michael Jackson a track and focused on rock and roll for the next, well, 15 years. But, uh, yeah, powerful impact on me and uh, really enjoyed the record. Thanks. Just a few more hours and I'll be right home to you. I think I hear the calling. Oh, Beth, what can I do? Beth, what can I Hi, this is Spencer in New York. I wanted to respond to the uh, Bob Ezrin interview, which I found immensely entertaining. And uh, you asked for my recollections of when I might have heard I'm 18. And I remember, as if it were yesterday, that I was 18 when that song came out. And I thought it was fantastic because it seemed to crystallize all my ambivalence about getting old and then uh, thinking about all the things you think about when you're 18 and the lines on your face and uh, the idealism and then the cynicism, just nip and tuck and erase. And then I have to say, no offense to Bob, but the live version, and I heard Alice Cooper perform it uh, when I was still 18 and it just graduated from high school. That was phenomenal. Thanks for the show, and uh, good luck to all the 18-year-olds out there.
No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.